This episode of Happy Second Fused is brought to you by our good old friends over at Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Well, then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off onto a voyage across the galaxy. Galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as the launch pad, we landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is truly the loot you're looking for. So remember, you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So remember, go to lucrate.com slash happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on your new subscription today. This episode of Happy Second Fused is brought to you by the Carnivore Club, an awesome subscription box for meat lovers. Each month, Carnivore Club delivers amazing quality cured meats to your door, made by America's best artisans. This Christmas, gift Carnivore Club to your meat-loving spouse, family member, or customer. The number of boxes you wish to gift can be customized from 1 to 12 months. Get unique finds like duck, venison, and wild boar salami, alongside classics like prosciutto and coppa, all made by independent American craftsmen. This month's feature is California's Angel Salumi, and you can get $10 off a gift or subscription when you enter the promo code HAPPY at checkout. So visit www.carnivoreclub.co to satisfy your inner carnivore. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy Second Fused. I'm Josh Horowitz. Happy holidays from my little weird office in Lower Manhattan. Thanks for tuning in, as always. Uh, joining me is Sammy. Hey, Sammy. Hi, Joshua. Don't use my full name. <laughs> um, this week's show is with a fantastic actor. He, frankly, maybe not one of the bigger names we've had on the show, but when I heard he was doing something cool on stage here in New York, uh, I immediately want to talk to him because he is one of those actors that is so reliably awesome in everything he does. His name is Mark Strong. If you know him, you know him from things like uh, The Imitation Game, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Kingsman. He was the bad guy in Sherlock Holmes. He was in a very pro uh, prominent Jaguar commercial. <laughs> Did you see that, Sammy? With, it was him, <laughs> Sir Ben Kingsley, and Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. Um, do a shot, because Tom Hiddleston's name came up in the in the podcast. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> waiting for it. You're playing at home. That's why you had Mark Strong. <laughs> yeah, basically, one degree Tom away. Hiddleston. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he is right now... Um, on stage here in New York, we talk at length about this. He's on stage in the uh, classic Arthur Miller play, A View from the Bridge. Um, it is really, really, really a fantastic uh, play and a fantastic production. And he is exceptional in it as Eddie Carbone. Uh, this is a, kind of a, an unusual, kind of avant-garde production of it, um, but it is well worth seeing. They did the production in London. They brought it over here. It's gotten phenomenal reviews. It's on stage through February. Uh, get tickets if you can. Yeah, they're, they're talking Tony Awards He's definitely gonna, He's definitely going to be nominated. It's early, but there are his names in there. He's fantastic in it. and um, Great eyebrows. Fantastic eyebrows. see him from the back row. He is. He's, yeah, he's a really one of those guys 
guys that like it, g- good or bad whether the movie maybe he is always exceptional so um it was fun to talk to him about um a really fantastic career and hopefully this one you know it's cool to see him in a leading role he's mm-hmm. frankly usually the character actor um in in things but um played a lot of villains but uh getting some much due uh, attention for his work on stage. So yeah, it was cool. I have a question. Yes. Did you, I know you, you like you came back from this show and you loved this show so much and I, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful play, but there were, you also had a pretty special night that night. Oh, you no, had a pretty no. special night with, it was so here. So, okay. Yes. So the context yeah, is, but come on, let's hear it. Well, it was one of these things. <laughs> where, so, you know, it's, it's always really good. You know, it's really expensive to go to the theater and it's tough to get tickets, but like, if you get the opportunity as an extra bonus, you often will see some really cool people in the crowd, especially if it's like a, like a hot ticket, like a view from the bridges. And I sat down with my wife and we saw, um, Bradley Cooper searching for his seat with, uh, his uh, girlfriend, Arena. Pronounce her name for us, Arena. Josh? I don't know how to pronounce her last name. She, Arena Shock? Shike? Listen, I have no idea. So. Uh, very uh, beautiful model uh, that he is, he's dating. And um, Bradley was um, searching for his seat. And his seat happened to be literally right behind mine. <laughs> so throughout the show, um, I was very... It's one of those weird things where you're like... Every time you hear a laugh right behind you, you're like, oh, yeah, that's Bradley Cooper laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Bradley Cooper ki- kicking my seat. Uh, he kicked your well, seat? Well, to be fair, the seats are a little... It's tight quarters well, at the theater. That's... Ooh. Uh, used to be on the stage, no, am no, I right? No, no, no. Bradley was lovely. I actually chatted with him very briefly. Um, and uh, Emma Stone was actually there, too. Emma Stone was two seats back. This was a power audience. Aloha reunion. Um, was Aloha reunion. <laughs> we did not talk about Aloha, but it was... Um, yeah. Um, and you had better seats than both of them. Well, let's calm down. But uh, so no. F you, Bradley No, Cooper. no. That's what I screamed. <laughs> See this seat? You can't get this seat. <laughs> Fuck you. No. Um, both are welcome on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> we will get no them both. Disrespect. We will get them both on. I'm sure Emma will do it at some point, and hopefully Bradley will too. I'm excited to see Joy, which he's and maybe Arena Shake will do it too. Yes, exactly. We're going to expand the purview to models. <laughs> Everyone's welcome here. Um, speaking of beautiful people, next week's show uh, we're taping it next week. I think it will run next week. I'm really excited to say that we have Academy Award winner Marion Cotillard. Marion Cotillard. Well done. I'm not going to even pr- try to pronounce it. Can well. you try? Marion Cotillard. I wish everyone could just see what happened to your face. When you <laughs> um, yeah, she's in the new um, uh, Macbeth, which is coming to the uh, mm-hmm. big screen. Uh, her and uh, Michael Fassbender. It's going to be. I am very. I've seen it. It's good. It's it's a, it's an interesting production. So um, yeah, that, that's about all to say right now. I want to um, uh, remind you guys to always hit me up on Twitter. Let me know who you want to hear on the podcast. It's a cool season for movies. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Go mm-hmm. see. Brooklyn, go see Creed, go see Room, go see Spotlight. Everything. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Suffragette. Suffragette. I have not seen yet. Suffragette. <laughs> you, you do the, you do the hard G? Okay, good to know. <laughs> it's all, yeah, it's the Philly pronunciation. It's okay, my accent. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, yes, it's the holidays. Time to eat a lot and see a lot of good movies. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Happy New Year to come. Mm-hmm. So many happy times. Merry tidings. Christmas. You forgot the big guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that this time of year? Yeah. It's, my, mean it's in my blind spot. Yeah. Um, no. Happy holidays to everybody and enjoy this podcast with uh, the fantastic, I mean, his voice alone for the next 45 minutes. Enjoy the great voice. I feel like it's going to be so relaxing. It's, it's very, it's very like soothing. I want to listen to it and then get a massage. There you go. <laughs> Do it at the same time. Why not? Yeah. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Mark Strong. Do you think he uses eyebrow gel?
we didn't get to that, but you that's a reason to bring the right him back. Questions. Well, this is either why I'm doing a great job or a horrible job. <laughs> It's good to see you, Mark. Thank you so much for coming in today. I it's appreciate it. Um, this is uh, this is one of those nights of theater that I'm, I'm going to remember for quite some time. Congratulations on the show. It's it's an amazing achievement you guys are, are doing each and every night. Thank um, you. And you've been doing it a while. I mean, you've been do- well. I mean, you've been doing it in a different incarnation and now here for a while. So, yeah. Does it feel like old hat at this point? Are you on autopilot or is each Never show little- autopilot? I mean, the way the play is. Uh, conceived and the kind of production it is and the fact that you have audience as close as you have means autopilot doesn't exist i mean you are you're right in the bear pit in front of people and you rely on the other actors because as you know there's no furniture there's no props yeah um and it's uh it's pretty intense i, I always feel uh, uh guilt somewhat guilty when i'm when i'm talking to an actor on broadway or uh, doing a show especially that you're doing two shows today yes mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a wednesday yes um, I feel like I'm sapping your energy. I feel like I feel like I feel like you might like your. If I say something stupid, your mind might think back to oh, what did Josh say three hours ago in the middle of the show. I don't want to get in the way of the art that you are performing today. Mm. What's wonderful is that you're able. Uh, I don't know if this is British actors particularly, but because we're all trained for the theatre, you're able to compartmentalise. Yeah. So I don't take Eddie home with me at the end of the day. Uh, before the show starts, there's nothing really that can throw me off course because the two hours traffic of the stage, as uh, Hamlet, I think, says, uh, is is completely contained. Yeah. I mean, I'm usually incredibly exhausted before the play starts, but once it starts, it grabs me by the scruff of the neck and drags me through to the end. I mean, I'm on stage pretty much the whole time. So the focus is... Um, complete and so there isn't really anything that can throw me off course so is, is there is there anything that you need to click you into the performance or is it just the the language the 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 atmosphere of the theater that gets you in the zone when when the, the lights dim etc there's always a kind of mental preparation that i do in the dressing room but what's wonderful is evo's conceived this beginning to the play where we basically shower right and we wash off the dirt of the day uh, but it also doubles as a kind of preparation for the production because essentially I shower and get dressed and then the play begins. So for me, that moment actually right at the top of the play is uh, incredibly valuable. It really, it, it's the segue from real life into the life of the play. So what's going on in your head in, the, in that couple minutes when the audience is like, okay, what, what am I watching? And you're getting in the zone. Like, are you focused on what you're about to do? Or are you, is your mind wandering or what? Straight after then, um, Catherine, my niece, comes onto the stage, followed by Beatrice, my wife. And I tell Beatrice that her cousins have landed from Sicily. And I say to her, "Uh, Tony Borelli, just come over to me, says the ships in the North River. What I'm actually thinking is, so Tony came over to me. That's interesting. (laughs) I wasn't expecting Tony, you know, at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean? I just do a little bit of that and that gets me into it. You just went into into the voice a little bit. And it's curious. I mean, like, you know... um, People have seen different incarnations of this. There was a, there was a fine production here on Broadway a few years sure. ago, which I saw and I enjoyed. It just shows you how many different ways there are to skin a cat because they're both fantastic in their own right. Yeah. But the, the the accent is not thick. It's not over the top. It's mm-hmm. not certainly not the production I saw a few years ago. Um, wh- why the choice to not go further in terms of like doing in terms of voice? Because it's not that kind of a production, I don't think. I think having removed everything that tries to persuade you that it's real, you know, having got rid of the furniture and the props and even our shoes, for God's sake, um, it's not about 
recreating reality and trying to pretend that what you're seeing is real. I mean, there are audiences right. on the stage. Uh, you can tell that it's not real. You can see the lights and the stage is very bare. What's important about this production is you hear the words. You understand the narrative. You get to know the characters completely. It's a very, very clear kind of version of the play. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it's not necessary really to do the accents in, in any kind of over-the-top way. And in fact, I think probably we did them stronger in London because in London it's much more exotic. Sure. A Brooklyn accent, you know, walk down a certain door towards a certain hall, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. Um, and we thought we were being very clever back home because obviously right. nobody really knew. And they were like, wow, marvellous accents. Absolutely <laughs> terrific. And then we got here and everybody said, just calm down. Right. <laughs> You've got, really, got 400 experts in the audience each night, so don't well, tell that, them. That's amazing in itself. I mean, we should talk about that. But... Um, Essentially, the accents. As long as we, as long as people can relax, you know, they don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Well, talk, talk, talk to me a little bit about bringing it uh, to New York beyond just changing uh, voice. Um, did the production change much otherwise? Not at all. I mean, we went from a very small theatre originally, the Young Vic in London, which yeah. is uh, on the cut in Waterloo, and it used to be the rehearsal space of the Old Vic Theatre. So it's a tiny little space of four hundred seats. Right. And I suppose when the play was originally conceived, it was, it, was, it was very filmic, the performance level. You know, the audience were all around us and were observing us do the play. Sure. There was no performance kind of required. Then we moved to the West End uh, and to a traditional proscenium arch theatre. And the staging changed in a sense that we then put seats on the stage right. and had the normal house out front. And so you had to kind of bring up the performance a little bit just to make sure people at the back and sitting mm -hmm. up in the gods could hear. And then we come now to the Lyceum, which is a beautiful, beautiful theatre. I think it's the oldest uh, continually running theatre on Broadway. Oh, is that right? So we're very proud to yeah. be there. Um, but it, it's increased in size again. So we've gone from 400 seats to 800 to 1100 and it just requires a little more performance level because otherwise people on the sides or the back or right up in the gods they won't be able to see and hear everything yeah um so that's that's kind of that's what's changed you know that's how, how each of the productions have changed so what's what's the audience's job as far as you're concerned when you're when you're on stage because you, as you say some are on the level with you you can mm -hmm. probably make eye contact and you probably whether you want to or not it probably mm -hmm. happens um we were talking as you walked in inevitably the phones ring my yeah. god how, yeah. how that still happens in 2015 <laughs> but um what's the job of an audience member stillness um should they make eye contact should i be what should i be doing that's a very good question. I hadn't really thought of it from the audience's <laughs> yeah. perspective. Um, Think about our side, Mark. Yeah, Come on. I, We've got I, mean, a I job do feel too. slightly for the people on the stage sometimes that they, they feel they might be rabbits caught in headlights yeah. because they are quite exposed, not only to the main house, but they're very close to the actors. But people instinctively know how to behave because I think the play takes over, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, whatever your conception is, the minute the big black box rises and you see what's on the stage... I, you know, you may think, hold on, I don't remember a view from the bridge starting with two guys in the shower or, you know, why haven't they got any shoes on or what's going on? But very quickly, it's as described to me by people who've been in the audience, there's something about it just sucks you in. You yeah. know, you, the audience, you can feel them move forward in their seat. You can feel them get quieter. It's quite jovial the beginning of the play there's a kind of very easy family atmosphere there's a slight problem with um catherine the niece having a job which eddie's a little bit unsure or jealous about but sure. it's a minor problem that's dealt with and so the first kind of moments of the play are quite 
quite good fun. You know, you see a family who are obviously very comfortable together. And then it obviously all starts to kind of go wrong. And as that happens, I think people get drawn in. And I can feel every night the house get quieter and quieter. And by the end, it's insane, the tension that collectively we're feeling in the audience with you guys. It's an amazing, cathartic kind of end. That's what people say. And it's very odd for us to hear that because obviously we're this side of the catharsis rather than the other side. And so we're not really aware of it. We're obviously creating it, but that's that's the what people say that there is something really absorbing about it it's hypnotically draws you in you know where it's going like all good tragedies you know what the ending's going to be and you just watch the whole thing happen like a car crash in slow motion you mentioned that the lack of shoes which i did notice is that something that um that you were open to when the director initially brought it up or was it something that no we fought him on (laughs) (laughs) Because we didn't quite understand what the purpose of it was. Um, Like a couple of other things in the production, too. I mean, the day that uh, it was said the Italians wouldn't have Italian accents, we were nonplussed. We couldn't understand that. But they've come from Sicily. They should have. Sure. Of course, now that they don't, uh, we've never thought about it for another second. Because actually what it stops the play becoming is theatrical right or an obvious fiction if suddenly people come on and start to talk like it is it becomes something else (laughs) sure and the same was true of the shoes i mean he said take your shoes off and we all went why we didn't quite understand but now that you see the set and you feel the kind of production that it is it kind of it roots us more and we're not clomping around this space the space becomes a sort of delicate area in which this tiny story about this small family becomes epic is Arthur Miller, does it have the same kind of importance in in England, in, in London, growing up in a, in a curriculum? I mean, like growing up here, you know, you obviously have Death of a Salesman, Crucible, from mm-hmm. the Bridge. These are all staples that I think most people go through here in the States. Mm-hmm. Is it the same where you're, where you're from? Ironically, I, I was told sort of back in the 80s and 90s, he was much more popular in the UK than he was here. Is that right? Yeah, and there were more plays being done back in the UK of Arthur Miller's than, than here in the US. Yeah. Um, I did a play with a great uh, uh, proponent of his, a director called David Thacker, who mm. did a lot of Arthur Miller plays at the National Theatre back in the 90s. I did Death of a Salesman in 96, and he came into rehearsal in the second week of rehearsals and said, listen, Arthur's been in touch. And uh, we said, what do you mean? He said, he's chairing a conference over in Salzburg. And he says we can go and work with him. So we went over there and for a week we sat with Arthur Miller while he read all the parts in the play and while we worked with him on, you know, what our production was going to be. And it was um, an extraordinary experience. But it made me realise that there's something about his plays, I think, at a time when he was writing in the 50s in America, you were have, experiencing a boom. Yeah. Things were great. You know, people were getting washing machines and dishwashers and looking to have their own cars and a bit of front yard and... There was a sort of economic miracle happening after the war here. But back home, we had rationing still in the UK in the right. 50s, uh, let alone what was happening in Italy or Germany or Austria. It was uh, tough times. Um, so to have a playwright who was writing about the darkness behind the veneer of civilization, quite unusual in America, sure. because that's what he was doing. He was scratching away at uh, everybody's sense of complacency in order to point out that behind the curtain things weren't necessarily all okay. And I'm sure that's partly to do with his experience with the House on american Activities Committee and right. all of that period that went on. You know, Marco, one of the characters in the play, has a line, I don't understand this country. And I'm pretty sure that's... That's Arthur that's speaking. Arthur, yeah. yeah, it's pure Arthur Miller. I think at a time when he was 
very confused by what was going on in his own country. Um, He was writing plays that were just letting people know all was not rosy in the garden. So at the time, I think people didn't really want to hear that. Whereas back home in the UK, we were a little more open to it, I think. He's one of those towering figures that it's like, it still boggles my mind. I was was working at at Charlie Rose's show actually here in New York in the the late 90s and he would come on occasionally and it was one of these Mm. things like, this person still exists in my time. This is is an icon. This is someone that has created the seminal works of our time and, and was still so vital even as he as he aged um a remarkable life yeah um talk to me a little bit about oh let's let's go back if if we could i mean was 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 theater the first love for you in terms of theater versus television versus film what was the the pop culture medium that caught your fascination as a child well i i never really i have no family in the business i didn't really know anything about it i always felt that uh people on tv and in shows and things they were other they were different from me it wasn't a world that i was remotely connected to i didn't even understand that you could be a part of that um and i actually started doing law first i went down a completely different path and in a way had a wonderful epiphany when i realized that law wasn't for me and if i was going to choose something for my life it had to be something interesting and I'd seen people doing workshops and things at the university that I was at, and I, I, I just became interested in acting, and I thought I'd explore more about it. And in a way, I was, it was a completely pure discovery right. that I knew nothing but thought it looked interesting, and the more I found out about it, the more I fell in love with it. I did an academic university degree and learned all about the Greeks and the Romans and Restoration Theatre and uh, melodrama, all, everything, you know, the history of theatre, while at the same time, uh, was able to kind of work in a little studio theatre they had where you could act, direct, you could work the soundboard, the lighting board, you could design, do everything connected with the theatre. And it just, it kind of filled me up and it made me realise I was never happier than when I was involved with something in the theatre. And then I went on to drama school sure. where I realised I needed to be able to learn how to walk and talk and speak and make sure people could hear me at the back and and had two years of a very intense theatre course so I came out trained for theatre and that's pretty much what I did in the UK were you good at it from the start like do do you you feel like those first performances were raw and just like all over the place or those first performances were all about um, endeavour and confidence and bravery and having a go but I hadn't really matured in the sense that I understood about live performance, you know, how to, the nuances of performance, the, the, how to really deliver a character over the course of an evening. And I've learned that over the years, I think, but, yeah. but you have to have that initial impetus to have a go. Otherwise you never get started. Time for a special message from one of our favorite sponsors, Meet the Kalebgeons, this Armenian family who entertain you with an excellent cup of coffee. Master Roaster Henry has earned his title by personally roasting coffee in San Francisco for six days a week for over 30 years. He learned the art from his father, who taught him how to turn the coffee roasting drum when he was just a young boy. Today, Henry's son, Hrog, is just as passionate about serving you the perfect cup of joe that will entice your taste buds. Clearly, coffee isn't just a business for the Klebgeons. It's truly in their lineage. With every sip of Henry's House of Coffee, you're doing more than just curbing your caffeine fix, guys. You're entering a new family. So experience what three generations of coffee tastes like. Get the perfect roast delivered right to your doorstep. Visit henryshouseofcoffee.com and enter promo code HAPPY to get free shipping. You have nothing to lose and a new coffee buzz to gain. 
Hey guys, this episode of Happy, Sad, Confused is brought to you by our friends at Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Well then, this is truly the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you guys can get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. So make sure to head to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live, not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as the launch pad, we landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more, with an exclusive Funko Pop and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate. This is truly the loot you're looking for. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it, guys. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com happy and enter code HAPPY to save $3 on your new subscription today. Has, has your diction been impeccable from the start? Because your voice is one of your greatest assets, as you well know. <laughs> is that something you had to work at? Or is it something that out of the womb you were talking like this? No, well, I think I would have frightened the life out of my mother. If I was. <laughs> the but, demon um, child, Mark. Yeah, what is well, he talking like that? Hello. <laughs> um, you, I don't know. It's just, uh, I suppose, over the years doing a lot of theater and uh, the, the diction element, clarity is never a bad thing. And it's useful for theatre and film. You see, the irony in film, people think you can get away with mumbling like this. And, yeah. blah, 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 blah. and it's often funny to me on a radio show, you'll hear somebody talking about a film and they go, let's hear a clip. And suddenly from hearing people talking clearly, you hear people <laughs> doing all this, you think, what are they saying? Right. It's really bizarre to me that it's sort of become fashionable to mumble and everything in, the, in, in film because people still need to hear what you're saying. The whole point of performance um, it's comprehension. It's what that film, exactly. It's <laughs> got to be about comprehension. So you kind of learn it. Uh, I learned it at drama school. Diction, you know, uh, how to use your voice. Uh, how many times have you practiced in the mirror throughout your years saying the name's Bond, James Bond? Because I feel like it would come out very well from your voice. Yeah, no, never have. Daniel's a very good friend of I know, mine, yeah. so that might be really peculiar. Um, like, step off my turf, man. Something we were friends. Something to to him. Yeah. No, I remember when he first got, he, I was sitting in his flat when he came in and he just threw the first script down on the table and went, uh, this looks like it might be a possibility. And he agonized over it oh, because he knew clearly. it would change his life. Um, Where did you come down? Did you offer advice at that time in terms of... I said, you have to do it. It's not something you can ever let pass you by. I mean, imagine he'd said no yeah. and watched somebody else be Bond for the last four movies. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those life choices that uh, just makes itself. Is, is that... Uh, I mean, do you have like a, kind of a, that kind of internal list of things that you want to do, whether it's like being a Bond villain as anything, as, as a villain, etc., cetera, uh, or work with certain filmmakers? Are you someone that kind of like keeps that kind of internal list in terms of aspirations work with certain filmmakers certainly i mean you know i've always wanted to work with the coen brothers i got very close to possibly doing no country for old men with them and i met them for it and amazing directors like uh, paul thomas anderson and you know there are certainly guys out there and uh and women too that i would love to work with so because i admire their work but i was talking about this with the cast the other day funnily enough most of us feel like 
we're not generators of our own work. I'm always impressed with actors who get into directing, writing, producing, or do yeah. something else, because I feel that I'm an interpreter. I like to wait until something comes to me, and then I, I can have a look at it and decide whether I can do something with it, Yeah. whether I feel like I can bring something to it. And I often turn things away that I think, mm, that's not for me. Um, because I think, I mean, awards are an interesting thing when you get awards, because... I often question whether they're actually about the actor or about the part that you've right. played. Because, I mean, they're about the part you've played. You get the best parts. Um, I think you will have longevity. You will be noticed. People will recognize and remember the performances you've made. And I'm sure awards get given to parts rather than actors. So um, it's very important that you choose the stuff that you know that you can do. When did, when did it start to turn into choice rather than I'll take anything I can get. Well, it took a while, you it know, did, at the right? beginning, you know, I, I did theater for almost 10 years. I did rep theater back then. It was a weekly rep, a monthly rep rather. Mm -hmm. The generation just before me had done weekly rep where you would learn a play in a That's week. That's intense. Yeah. You just keep moving. Exactly. Wow. We did it monthly. So we would perform in the evenings and then during the day we'd rehearse next month's play. And I did that for nine plays. I did nine plays in nine months. So keep the brain fresh. Keep you, oh, yeah. keep you moving. Yeah. And they were all different. You know, one was a pantomime, one was like yeah. a modern play one was a restoration play one was like the importance of being earnest and you had a it's, it was gold dust that year that i did in in rep it's called repertory theater and then i went to the royal shakespeare company and i did my fair share of holding spears and sure. running on making short species in gold armor and you know <laughs> had an amazing time to, but mostly watching other actors from the wings you know the kind of uh, older actors do their stuff because the royal shakespeare company is a big group of people and there were a lot of people you could watch. And then the National Theatre, I went on tour with Richard III and Lear. King uh, Ian McKellen was, was Richard III. Brian Cox was King Lear. Wow. And one company doing those plays, we went around the world for a year with it. So I felt like that was my training. And um, I only thought I was going to do theatre. I was going to say, I mean, because the film work really has come primarily in a little over the last decade, essentially, yeah. which is fairly late in a career to kind of find this whole new avenue where you resign to like, I'm happy where I'm at, where I'm at. I do a ton of TV. I do a lot of theater. Things are going well. I can make a living at this, which is more than a lot of actors can say. I think, or, or was there like something about like film? Oh, I, why is this just not happening yet? I think Maybe. more that exactly yeah. what you've just said. Uh, I have, sort of describe myself as something I don't really play chess with my career I'm not that kind of actor where I think if I do this job that could lead to that then those people will notice me then I can get right. that job and then maybe I can win something you know it just does that's not really what I'm after what I'm after is continual work yeah. I want to I remember the head of my drama school the first day we were there he said listen if there's anything else you can do I suggest you leave now and the other thing he said was if you want 50 years 40, 50 years in this business there's no hurry Take your time, learn stuff. And I really took that to heart. Yeah. So when I got that first job in rep in the wilderness, people said to me, why, why do you, why don't wait for a film, you know, or wait for something in London? I said, no, no, I, I just want to work. Um, and so I, I was doing theatre and then I just, a point came where friends of mine who'd also been in plays with me were suddenly doing movies. Mm hmm. And I remember just thinking, how has that happened? How come Did I not get the memo? Did I yeah, exactly. miss the meeting? What happened? Exactly. Who, who were your peers that you're talking about? That, that well, um, I'm thinking specifically of a, of a TV series I did uh, in the UK called Our Friends in the North. And that's where I met Daniel, because Daniel Craig was in it, an actor called Christopher Eccleston, an Amazing, actress yeah. called Gina McKee yeah. and I. We, the four of us, it was about us. It was 11 hours of television, very unusual then, back in the uh, early to mid-90s. 
we aged from the 1960s through to the 90s. It was a kind of state of the nation piece about the UK, very popular in the UK, but um, not particularly relevant over here in the US. But after that show finished, I remember going back to the theatre because I thought, well, I've got to do a play a year. That's what I want to do. And while I was in the theatre, after about nine months of the others not getting any work and me feeling terribly sorry for them, (laughs) they all got movies. Gina went off to work with Michael Winterbottom. Chris went off and did a movie. Daniel did a film called Love is the Devil with John Mabry and Derek Jacobi. And I remember thinking, oh, and what they'd done is they'd all, on the advice of their agents, very wisely waited to get into the movies. And I hadn't ever really thought about it. And then it took a few more years before I finally said, I'd like, you know, that's something I'd like to try. Having done a bit of television. Sure. So um, I moved really from theater through television into movies. I'm I'm fascinated. You've mentioned and you've talked openly about this before that you were, yes, apparently pretty close to getting the Anton Chigurh role in in No Country. Just to Mm -hmm. see what your interpretation would have been versus Javier's. Was it a much different take you had even in the audition and meeting process? Not particularly. I I think the character. That's one of those where it's the character that, I mean, obviously what Javier did was amazing. He was brilliant. And actually, I, I think he's better casting definitely I mean he's more he's kind of more brutal you know he's much squarer than mm-hmm. I am and stronger and that, that amazing sort of strange hair he had made him such a peculiar kind of character right I think he was absolutely perfect um, but I would have been I would have done a, something slightly different yeah. but uh, at that time I was I was kind of just about to start playing a number of villains and, and the right. Brits you know we have a very honourable entree into Hollywood playing Brits when I, uh, playing villains when I think of uh, I don't know Jeremy Irons or uh, Alan Rickman Alan or Anthony Hopkins yeah. you know everybody got into Hollywood kind of playing dark characters I, I kind of like also that you've you know a lot of people you know worry about typecasting you've You've kind of embraced it in a way. You did that fantastic like Jaguar campaign with, with uh, Sir Ben Kingsley and, and Tom Hiddleston. Uh, hopefully, did you get a, a Jaguar out of the deal at least? Or do you drive around in one? They let me have a go in one. <laughs> 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 is that something that you've, that, that is, is typecasting a real thing that you've experienced? Or is it something that you feel like you've, again, playing villains is not such a bad gig, especially in the kind of films that you've gotten to do it in? That's a really pertinent question, I have to say, because... When I was starting out, everybody was terrified of typecasting. It was something that you had to avoid like the plague. You know, yeah. you just couldn't. And a very good friend of mine, uh, Jason Isaacs, I remember, played a, a mean character in The Patriot, a film called sure. The Patriot, and then consequently turned down many bad part, bad guy parts that he was offered in Hollywood. And I think later always felt perhaps he should have done those parts, but he was so worried about being typecast that he didn't take those parts. And it meant he had to wait for ages for the kind of the smoke to clear right. before he was able to carry on, you know, getting regular parts, I suppose. Um, and I remember talking to him about it and uh, I started to get these parts and people started to say, are you worried about typecasting? I remember thinking, I think times have changed. I think when a part is good, it doesn't really matter what it is. And everyone I was being offered, whether it was in Sherlock Holmes or Robin Hood or Kick-Ass or, you know, Stardust or wherever it was coming from, they were all really fascinating characters in their own right. The fact that they were villains was, to me, neither here nor there. Sure. Was, was, was Sherlock in particular one that 
because I remember it just as a, as a, as a viewer, as an appreciator of film, I feel like I saw you, you got a lot of great notices from the Ridley Scott film body of laws, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. And, and Sherlock, Sherlock seemed like a big moment because, you know, that's, that's a huge tentpole film and, you know, ostensibly they could have gone with a bigger name for that kind of a role. Was sure. that something you'd obviously worked with guy? Was that something that had to, was, was fought at, fought for in terms of getting you in there? Or was, did guy have enough kind of juice at that time to say, this is the guy, this is a great actor. This guy needs to be this, this character. They, they, I think they, they had to fight for me, Yeah, you know, because obviously the studio didn't know who I was. I'd done a film with a guy called Rock and Roller sure. that people really enjoy. Yeah. And Joel Silver was involved with bringing right. it over to the States right. and he was involved in Sherlock Holmes. So I think it was a Guy and Joel together went into Warner Brothers and said, look, this is the guy you need. I'm curious. I mean, you, we talked, uh, you talked a little bit about working with people like, what, in a, in a production, I think you said Richard III with Brian Cox and, and Ian McKellen. Mm -hmm. Over the years, what you've observed from the greatest actors and decent actors, like what, the, what that difference is, if that is a tangible, describable thing that you've noticed over the years in terms of the, truly the best of the best versus those that are jobbing decent actors. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you can pinpoint in terms of what makes the greatest ones that great? That's very tricky. I mean, like I said before, the parts that you play are very important. Yeah. If you can do something with a role, people will relate to it, notice it, be impressed by it, whatever, you know, it just, it's very important the parts that you're playing. If you're shoehorning yourself into something that you can't do, obviously I don't think it will show you in the best light. Yeah. But as to, you know, good and bad actors, so many actors have learned over the course of their careers, you know, who started out not particularly good and then, you know, did something amazing. Um, and they've kind of learned on the job, as we say. Yeah. But it's very hard to pinpoint why people can and can't do it. It's, um, it's just a kind of instinct. I think what's, for me, what's just as important is not only what you do on stage or on film, but how you behave off it. Right. And being at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company, those were things that I really noticed was how those stars, in inverted commas, um, behaved when they weren't on stage. And they were always encouraging and... Uh, generous, right. uh, the best ones anyway. And they happened to be, those were the best actors. I mean, Gary Oldman, who I worked with on Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, was a hero of mine, is a hero of mine. Uh, he's slightly older than me, so I was very conscious of the stuff he was doing. He was choosing an incredibly eclectic mix of characters. Yeah. And, uh, and then I got to work with him. And I think I was a little nervous because I wasn't sure what he would be like. And I did that classic, I made the classic mistake of judging him on the characters he's played. Right. Actually, he's one of the most generous, supportive, kind people I've ever worked with. And that, to me, is the sign of a truly, truly gifted actor. He, it's funny you mention him because I think I've mentioned this before. I, I, I agree with you. He is probably one of the top actors I've ever seen. Everything he does is sublime. Um, seeing him on a talk show like 10 or 15 years into watching his material, I finally realized I was hearing his actual voice for the first time and I never experienced it before I had no idea who Gary Oldman was yeah. the, the true mark of a of a chameleon yeah. is that man yeah um you've worked with some amazing filmmakers especially in that in the last 10 or 12 years uh, and it, it speaks well of you that many of them have repeated whether it's you know mm -hmm. Ridley Scott's and, and and Guy and Matthew um I mean, do you, working with, with Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughn, like, is, is that a kind of a different experience? Because, I mean, do you view them more as, as peers than someone like a, like a Ridley Scott, who's obviously of a, of a previous generation? Is it a different kind of an experience? I do, I suppose. They are my friends, you know. Uh, but I have an enormous amount of respect for them because those guys 
came up against the brick wall of the British film industry when they were trying to get their first film made, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Sure. There was a classic cliquey thing going on in the UK. They turned up with this script. Nobody was interested. Nobody would give them the time of day. And they circumvented the British film industry, made their own movie, had a massive success with it, then did again, made the second movie, right. had an even bigger success with that. And now Matthew is making... I think he's made five films. Every one of them has been successful. Fantastic. He's not only making money, but they're critically acclaimed. Yeah. Um, uh, he's a really, really talented guy. And Guy went into the studio picture world and he's making these, these huge movies. And, you know, he comes from 500-pound music videos originally. So right. he's really learned his craft and his trade over the years. So I have an incredible amount of respect with them. And I think when I work with them, they'd started out working with some actors, some non-actors, I think what I gave to them was a proper actor. That's what they saw me as. Sure. A guy who turned up, knew his lines, hit his marks and delivered a performance. Because so many people don't do that. You'd be amazed. Who don't really even have the basic techniques of film <laughs> acting, let alone having learned their lines, yeah. let alone being nice people to work with. So that counts for an awful lot. And um, I'm sure that's why I've, I've worked with them more than once. Do you... Um you know, it, it had been a while since you'd been on the stage, I think 10 or 12 years, right? Something mm -hmm. like that. Did you have concern the first couple of times you stepped on the stage after all that time? I was terrified, to be honest with you. I really enjoyed the rehearsal process. Ivo Van Hove, the director of, of You From The Bridge, made a fantastic environment for us all to work in. And I remembered how much I loved doing plays, having not been on stage for 12 years. Sure. You know, the idea of getting black words on a white page up onto their feet and suddenly you're embodying a character, you're performing with other people, and you're telling a story with your body and your voice, you know? It's, a, it's an amazing experience. So the rehearsal process was wonderful, and then we got to the first public performance, and I, you have to try and imagine what it's like to be in the dressing room where there's a speaker on the wall, which is the relay from the stage manager who's letting you know, okay, half an hour to go, sure. 15 minutes to go, five minutes to go, there's the countdown to performance. And at the five minutes, they switch on the mics in the auditorium. So suddenly you hear the buzz of the audience. So there you are in your dressing room. You've rehearsed this play for four weeks. This is the first public performance. You have no idea what it's going to be like, whether it's going to work, whether you're going to mm -hmm. remember your lines, any of that stuff. And you're listening to the buzz of the audience and the adrenaline courses through you. Everybody describes it exactly the same. And then you walk down the corridor, down the stairs, you stand behind the set, and then the lights go down and the noise of the audience goes down. And then a light comes up and you have to just walk out there and do it. And that is a really, truly <laughs> terrifying experience. <laughs> when you chills are fearing it, it yeah. yeah. And I had, I think, probably what could be described as stage fright, rather than just nerves. Nerves are quite useful because it means you're switched on, you're ready sure. to go and, you know, you're in fight or flight mode, which is the best condition. Yeah, you're razor sharp. You need, yeah, exactly. you need to be your best. Stage fright is something else completely. That's like waking up in the morning, opening your eyes, your first thought is I'm alive, your second thought is sheer terror. And I experienced that and um, tried to cope with it by... I stopped drinking coffee. I started trying to breathe regularly. There are techniques on stage that you can do, which are forget about yourself, you know, act with the other person. Right. Put the spotlight React. on the yeah, other yeah, person. Yeah. Exactly. Don't make it about you. And using those techniques and um, 
you know, simple common sense, getting some sleep and uh, whatever. So how did the stage fright manifest, though? I assume you weren't forgetting lines and, and just screwing up. It was, it was just how, what you were feeling in yeah. turn. You go way. out on stage and there is another voice in your head that is commenting on what's happening, that is noticing the audience, that is challenging you to remember your lines. Um, it's a strange idea. Yeah. It's like a... It's like a because you have another voice in your head when you're performing. This, this whole idea of method I find very interesting. The idea that you subsume yourself completely to a part. How can that be possible? You can see the audience. You know, on a film set, you can see the camera. You know it's not real. Sure. The point is not about being 100%. Because what you have to use some craft in order to know how to use the camera. Right. Uh, how to deliver what you're, the lines that you're saying to an audience. So... Part of your brain is always involved with making sure you don't bump into the furniture, right. you know, dealing with problems. If somebody else forgets a line or drops a line, you can cope with that. Making sure you're in the right place on the stage, all of that. 5% of your brain maybe is doing that. With stage fright, I'd say 50% of your brain is constantly teasing you, challenging you, reminding you that you're terrified. <laughs> the trick is turning that off, oh, quieting that. Yeah, and that's what you have to do. And basically, I had to do a number of previews before huh. that voice started to disappear. What, um, I mean, you talk about that, uh, you explained it very well, kind of that feeling of going out on stage for the, that first time after um, rehearsing. The, does anything on a film set hit that high for you? What, what have been the highest highs for you being on a film set? When does it feel the best that it can feel? Whether you're talking specifically about a specific instance or generally. I think when you know you're working with the best people, to be yeah. honest. I mean, when I did Body of Lies with Ridley Scott, uh, being on set with Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the three of us. and uh, Yeah, you're in a room knowing there are not two better actors exactly. working together at this moment exactly. right now. Yeah, and you've got an amazing script and you've yeah. got a, a fantastic director. And, you know, there was a moment where I thought this is about as good as it gets, you know. Um, and the same is true when I went on, on set at Kingsman, you know, and there was Michael Caine and there was Colin Firth. Uh, and in fact, I walked on set on S Michael Caine with the first day. He was standing there in front of the crew. And uh, I walked in the room and he went, oh, it's you. <laughs> I like you. I think you're a good actor. I like you in front of the crew. And Matthew afterwards went, wow, he didn't say that to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you got the Cain seal of approval. This is huge. Yeah, yeah. So those kind That's of amazing. moments are really great, you know. <laughs> and feeling like you're in the company of somebody like Michael Caine, who is film history. Yeah. You know, I felt the same when I was... Um, you know, when I worked with uh, Roman Polanski, you know, you felt like th this man is connected to film history, connected to Jack Nicholson, connected to Chinatown, you know, the great, yeah. one of the great movies. So when you work with people like Ridley Scott, too, who've, who've made such um, amazing films, those are the times, I think, when it's best in the movies, when you're working with people at the top of their game. Was Polanski an easy guy to deal with? I mean, I've talked to a lot of actors that have worked with him. He's not necessarily the warmest, cuddliest filmmaker. No, um, he's, he's like an imp. He's like a mischievous imp. Yeah. Um, and what I remember most of all is the terrible jokes he insisted on telling all the time. He'd tell these jokes and think they were the funniest jokes you'd ever heard. And they were awful, they were appalling jokes. Did you pretend to find them amusing or did At you? At first I did. And then I was just like, oh, stop it. But he was... Maybe he's testing me. Maybe he's purposely telling me bad jokes and I have to tell him back. <laughs> no, he was, a, he was a fascinating guy. He was very into the reality of every moment. Yeah. You know, he didn't want you to rush moments because you can cheat things on camera. Um, 
He never wanted that. You know, if you had to unlock a door, he wanted you to get the proper key, make sure the key actually fitted in the lock, the lock actually worked, and open the door in real time. Right. He was sort of obsessed with minute details like that. And he was constantly fiddling with my costume, you know, what buttons I had and whether my collar was up or down. He was very, very into the... Um, the reality of all those tiny little details. He wouldn't be directing this production of A View from the Bridge. This is not necessarily his style. No, he has done theatre, hasn't he? I think yeah, I think he, he has. Uh, yeah, but um, I don't... Th- I, well, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Um, what's the post-mortem now, now that it's been a few years on, on, on Green Lantern? How do you rationalize what, what happened with that in terms of the success that it, it didn't necessarily turn out to be in terms of financially? I don't know if you consider it artistically satisfying or not. Mm. What do you, what, when you look back at it, what do you think? My take on it, films are alchemy. All creative undertaking is alchemy. You know, novels, paintings, theater, films, whatever. So you're hoping that all the ingredients are going to work. Yeah. Jeff Johns, I think, is a really clever guy, you know, at DC. And um, they put together what I think is a really faithful film to the comics. Sure. Unfortunately, it was coming out in the same year as X-Men, Thor, and Captain America. So you had a real glut of superhero movies that year. And I think it was the last one to come out. Right. And what it is, I think, is a very faithful film to the comic book. And if you're a 13, 14-year-old boy, it's fantastic. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of the people, you know, who had their eyes on that movie weren't impressed with the initial CGI clips that came out so already a kind of whispering campaign started is this right is this not right and you know the internet can be a terrible thing and i think that a whole sort of rumor started around whether or not ryan reynolds was the correct guy to play hal jordan or whether the cgi was right so it opened at the end of these four other three other superhero movies over the summer with a slight kind of negative vibe about it and it just it just didn't recover from that I don't think um, I was really proud of what I did as Sinestro yeah. I've had a lot of really kind you know um, comments about it that it was a, a really classic rendering of that part and that's why I played it I thought God if I can look like that guy yeah and I love transformation you know I think as an actor that's what I'm interested in most of all if I can look like that guy and deliver that I'll be very happy and I like the film I think it's fine you know much like John Carter is another I love John I think, Carter I really do it's a it's you know it's a, it's a really good film yeah but film unfortunately these days also has the whole kind of side issue of gossip yeah. and comment and all of that about it as well and sometimes films never get a foothold in order to take off right uh, and allow people to watch them they they both those films I think had a a kind of cloud of negativity around them when they came out, which is unfortunate because I like both films. Do you consume a lot of film? Are you able to in this? I mean, you're a busy man right now, but this is the good time of year where some really good stuff is, is coming yeah. out. What yeah, I do. I've, I've kind of started loving the smaller independent films, you know, um, I, I, The Big Short, I think. I just watched recently. Oh, I haven't I seen it yet. That's good. Yeah. yeah, really great. And uh, Brooklyn, another wonderful film. Um, I'm sort of enjoying those uh, kind of films, I think. And Spotlight, I thought, was terrific as Fantastic. well. Um, and I may go and do a film, actually, with Jessica Chastain called uh, Miss Sloan, which is a story about the lobbying industry. Oh, is that right? So films like Spotlight and The Big Short, you know, stand it in good stead. Because I think people are up for uh, films that kind of um, slice into 
that kind of world, right. you know, a world that we don't necessarily understand, but kind of lay it bare. If you want to catch a different side of Jessica Chastain, you might want to look up some of the comedic shorts that she's done with me over the years, which are <laughs> amazing. <laughs> oh, really? She is an untapped resource in terms of comedy, I'm telling you. Oh, really? She's fantastic. I always love it when you hear that about people. You know, they have this other thing that they can do. Amazing. She can do it all, clearly. Um, uh, any, I don't know how old your, your boys are. Is there a lot of Star Wars talk in your house right now? Is there? Do you care much about it at all? My wife's brother was a massive, massive fan of Star Wars, a total geek. So, yes, the boys have seen the first three, and they love them, and they're very, very excited. I feel like you could have a really good place in the Star Wars universe. Whether I mean, the baddies generally are, are British, as we know in Star Wars. There's a Sith Lord in there somewhere for me, surely. Seriously, yeah. it would look great with a hood and a lightsaber, and I don't know, <laughs> or an Imperial outfit. I'm just saying, there are ways to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm available. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> and um, looking ahead, uh, we're going to see you, uh, I've seen some trailers for Grimsby, which is clearly, talking about a change of pace, Sure, that's going to be a fun one Sasha Baron Cohen is operating yeah. on a whole nother level of comedy a genre I've never really kind of been involved with you know action comedy and Sasha's kind of comedy too which in itself is out there I mean he's a natural born clown and loves to push the envelope as much as possible and it's going to be hilarious and offensive all at the same time but um, they're saying that it's uh, you know it's it's a fun watch did it feel like uh, that was one word not only did you have to put your trust in the director but also Sasha because Sasha clearly knows this type of comedy that he wants to produce and clearly knows how to do it well. He's an amazing guy, I have to say. I mean, a very bright guy. Went yeah. to Cambridge, you know, really intelligent. And he's a real um, seeker after the truth of comedy. You know, he'll often, he'll often give me lectures about comedy. You know, say you can't do that because that's a joke on a joke. Oh, interesting. You can't have two jokes operating in the same thing. You can just do one or the other. And he would often kind of talk to me about improvisation and the, and the kind of... The science of improvisation, if you like. He's right. a real kind of, uh, he's a, a, a guy who really tries to track down why things are funny. Um, while at the same time, you know, in, rejoicing in the hilariously offensive. Right. As only he can. <laughs> so, you know, um, I love him and we get on really well. The improvisation was a really extraordinary experience. And um, he gave me the confidence to do it, really. Is, is that still thrilling for you where, like, you know, you've been doing this a while, but like, oh, wait, there are still avenues, there are still aspects of my own talent that I can access that haven't been exploited yet, that I can, that I can test myself, I can push myself. The work's not done yet. I, I don't know all there is to know yet. Well, I felt like, you know, as we were talking about Sinestro, that's a whole world of prosthetics and... Uh, yeah science fiction that I'd never really tackled, which I really enjoyed. With Sasha, I get the opportunity to do improvised comedy, which is something that I've never really done. Both of those things, I suppose, I was nervous about. But if you don't keep trying to discover new things, how will you ever know what you're good at? It is Kingsman, which I think the sequel is pretty coming pretty close, right? You're going to be shooting yeah. that relatively soon. Is that yeah. basically like a holiday to work with friends like that on, on, a, on a project of that type? Is that something you're very much looking forward to getting back into? Yeah, well, Colin, I've worked with four or five times right. now, Colin Firth. I mean, I know him very well. And Matthew, I've made three films with. So uh, what I describe it as you no longer need to do the dance with those people. Right. You know, when you meet somebody new and you're on set with them or you're on stage with them, you have to work out how you're going to interact with them and how you're going to get on for the next God knows how long. Right. With Matthew and Colin, I no longer need to do the dance because we all know our steps. Has Matthew told you much or have you seen the script yet for the new one? No, he, I keep getting these cryptic messages, call me, call me. And I keep trying to call <laughs> him and he's obviously writing it and I haven't been able to get hold of him. But uh, I think it moves to America. That's what There's he was an saying, American right? Element, yeah. And he was talking about 
about shooting in uh, Kentucky and uh, Singapore, but that's all I know. <laughs> that's a wide range. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you get Singapore too. I mean, Kentucky sounds lovely, but yeah. I think you should get some Singapore time in there. Well, I hope so. I mean, New York as well and London. Oh, nice. And he said, uh, as far as he knows, Merlin is involved in all of those locations. Fantastic. So I think I'll be spending my summer with Matthew. I just I just saw Taron in his next film, Eddie the Eagle. Oh, have you seen that? It's excellent. Is it? It truly is. It's oh, like a, it's a good feel good sports film. And he's he's in a much different kind of character for him. I think he's Perfect. super talented. You see how amazing that is for Taron. He comes out of drama school. Yeah. Goes straight into Kingsman. Yeah. And then the very next film he gets is another lead, Eddie, which is completely different. I mean, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful beginning, you know. And it seems like a good head on his shoulders from from talking to him after Kingsman. I mean, that's that's got to be screw with a kid's head, I would think. But yet he seems to be handling He's a cool guy. Well. He's coming at the industry with respect, which is what you kind of have to do. And that yeah. thing I said earlier on about wanting 40 or 50 years in this business, yeah. you know, it's one thing getting lead in a movie and then perhaps getting another lead in a movie, but you've got to sustain that now for the next 40 yeah. years. You know, you've got to kind of, there's only very, you can fingers of one hand, like Tom Cruise. Right. Who else? I don't know. Is, is, part of you, is part of you happy that this kind of career that you have right now didn't happen when you were 25 or could you have handled it, you think? No, back then? I'm, I'm delighted at the way it's kind of happened because it's been a slow burn and I feel like as I've gone along the way, I've learned everything that's taken me to the next level and the next step. And so to round it up, to be here on Broadway yeah. after, I don't know, what, 25 years is, uh, if somebody told me that at the beginning, I would have taken that, you know, like a shot. It's a, it's a wonderful place to be and I feel like I, what I bring now is the stuff I've learned over the last 25 years, which I couldn't have done when I was a young man. Well, you certainly do that each and every night um, on stage. I can't tell you. It's one of my favorite um, productions. I've seen it in quite some time, and I, I hope people check it out of you from the bridge. It's going through, what, February? Is that? That's right, February the 21st, I think. Very nice. So get a ticket if you can. Uh, check out an amazing performance and an amazing ensemble and an amazing production. The keyword is amazing. Um, <laughs> Mark, it's really been a pleasure to catch up with you oh, today. Thanks. Thanks for your time. It's lovely chatting. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Cool. Thanks, guys. How yeah. lovely. I can't think of a better way to start the day. We did it. Yes. <laughs> Meet the Kalebjians, three generations of coffee roasters. Master Roaster Henry has been roasting coffee in San Francisco, guys for six days a week for over 30 years. His son, Hrog, is equally passionate about serving you the perfect cup of joe. Coffee isn't just a business for the Klebgeons, it's truly in their lineage. So experience the buzz right now by visiting henryshouseofcoffee.com and enter promo code HAPPY to get free shipping today. Guys, you have nothing to lose and a new coffee obsession to gain. Here's five reasons to listen to Who Charted. Number five, Howard. It sounded fantastic. It sounded big and bombastic. Number four, Kulop. Oh, my God. Number three, Sard. Are you serious? Don't wait. Number two, Guest. My real name is not Kether Donahue. I'm in the Witness Protection Program. Number one, the, the charts. charts. If they could keep this promise that it really was the last witch hunter, I might be interested. Check out Who Charted every Wednesday at Earwolf.com or your favorite podcast app. Charts. Pop. 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 This has been a Wolf Pop production. 
Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.